From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I try not to offer my opinion a whole lot on this show. I do, of course, but I try to let my guests speak for themselves. Yet I am passionate about today's topic. I've been a minister for over 21 years. The issue that has been up front and center during my entire ministry and that has divided our church denominations and our country has been heterosexual privilege and prejudice. I put it very specifically in those terms. The denial of equality, the presence of physical, emotional, and spiritual violence, and willful ignorance against gender and sexual minorities has taxed our resources, destroyed families, and resulted in harm, at times death, to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. I get asked to speak or participate in panel discussions at various college campuses, ETSU, Northeast State, and Tusculum, for example, regarding the LGBT, quote, issue, end quote. I'm somewhat of a novelty, I suppose. I get asked because I'm a minister and I advocate for the simple proposition taught by Jesus and others before him to treat others as you want to be treated. No one would want to be treated the way LGBT people are treated. They're called horrible names, denied the freedom to marry, denied leadership, even membership in their houses of worship, ostracized by their families, and forced to live in secret because living openly could result in loss of employment, harassment, and worse. And this is all based on a mistaken belief that homosexuality is a sin and thus against God's plan. That is simply wrong. The sin is prejudice. Prejudice has always been against God's plan. Until we get it right that being gay is not a sin, but being mean is the sin, we will continue to cause needless pain and suffering. Today we will hear about the movement for justice and equality in our mainline churches. We will talk about sin, why the issue centers around the clergy, and we will hear about some courageous people who walk the talk in the civil rights struggle of our time. My guest is R.W. Obi Holman. He says that he and his wife, Lynn, are lifelong Lutherans with involvement on the progressive side of ELCA, that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, political skirmishes. His blog, Spirit of a Liberal, was a leading voice in support of the gay-friendly policies adopted by the ELCA. And his latest book, Queer Clergy, A History of Gay and Lesbian Ministry in American Protestantism is the subject for today's conversation. He's with me via Skype from his home in Minnesota. Welcome, Obi, to Religion for Life. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. It is good to speak with you. Uh, we've been engaging in parallel play with our respective blogs for some time, and I'm excited to talk with you about your important book, uh, Queer Clergy. Uh, how did this book come to be? In 2009, my ELCA churchwide assembly was to be held in Minneapolis. Uh, and I lived in uh, Northfield, Minnesota, which was about 45 minutes down the freeway. There was a sense that after years of frustration from the gay community, that this assembly might finally be the time for a breakthrough and, and a change in policies. Uh, I volunteered for uh, the advocacy group called Good Soil. It was a coalition of, of several Lutheran LGBT organizations. 
So I was at the assembly on a daily basis doing what we called graceful engagement. I simply visited with folks in the hallway and over coffee and, and so on. And as the week wore down and it became obvious that this indeed was going to be the breakthrough year, I celebrated with everyone else. Uh, and it was a, a real uh, uh, profound experience for me. After the assembly, I blogged an awful lot about the results and I took on the opponents of the change. So my blog went viral in Lutheran circles at that time as I was a, a leading voice in favor of the changes. Uh, and as I created blog posts, I heard stories, stories that I had never heard about early pioneers uh, in the movement and the struggles that they had, not only in my own ELCA, but across denominations. And it occurred to me that there's a rich narrative of the, of the journey toward full inclusion that hadn't been told. So I thought I should write a book about this. Even though I'm straight and I felt somewhat an interloper writing a gay history, I found uh, great support in the gay community. Uh, many of the iconic figures of the struggle across denominations are still around and they were only too happy to speak with me and share documents, share their stories and uh, be a great support. So that's the story of how the book came to be. Well, I have a question uh, about the title of your book, uh, especially the, your use of the word queer. Uh, my colleague, uh, Reverend Don Steele, is a retired PCUSA minister. He's a gay man, and he uh, assists me in ministry as a volunteer in my congregation. Now, he doesn't like the word queer. It's a painful word for him. And yet, on the other hand, uh, some younger clergy have embraced uh, the word queer as empowering. Uh, what does the word queer mean to you, and uh, how did you decide to title your book Queer Clergy? Uh, the working title as I was writing the book was simply Gaze in the Pulpit. And the publisher, Pilgrim Press, uh, ultimately said they didn't really care for that and I should come up with something else. So by this time, I had quite a network of, of uh, gay men and, and lesbians, as I mentioned, the iconic figures of the movement, and I put it out to them. I uh, did uh, circular emails to 20 or 30 people saying, what, uh, what suggestions do you have? And it was as a result of that that the new title came up. And I was told that though queer often sounds pejorative mostly to uh, the straight community. It is perhaps the, the title that is preferred by the emerging gay community. So I basically went with what my gay friends suggested. Now, your book is the story of five mainline denominations, uh, the United Church of Christ, the Presbyterian Church USA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, uh, the Episcopal Church, and the United Methodist Church. And you also devote a chapter um, to some other groups that embraced equality right from the beginning, such as the Unitarian Universalist Association. Uh, and, you know, it really is a church movement in a sense. Uh, it, it was because of church uh, when I was at seminary myself in the late 80s that I actually even became aware of the movement for LGBT equality. So the struggle for equality for sexual and gender minorities and dignity has been, uh, equality and dignity has been intimately connected uh, with religion and with church, hasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, my research suggests that there were 
uh, strong 1960s clergy involvement in the movement, leadership. Uh, there's an organization in San Francisco called the Council on Religion and Homosexuality that was very influential. Uh, Troy Perry, who started the Metropolitan Community Churches, a specifically gay church, actually predated Stonewall. Uh, so yes, the, the clergy was very much involved with this movement from the beginning and continuing to the present. Here in Minnesota, in the last year, the Minnesota legislature has passed marriage equality. And there was significant lobbying effort on both sides, as, um, as, as one would expect. Interestingly, the, uh, the folks in favor of, of marriage equality, that movement, that lobbying effort, was largely led by local faith leaders. Uh, so the point is, yes, uh, uh, churches and specific churches uh, have been very much at the forefront of this movement. Can you give us uh, an overall picture of the journey uh, for equality just kind of through the decades? Um, not, not exhaustive, but just a little bit of uh, some key points of, of, uh, of each decade. Yes. Uh, the 60s was sort of about uh, proposing changes in the criminal code uh, to eliminate uh, arrests for loitering and so on. So it was uh, on the, the level of changes in the civil law. There really weren't any issues within the church until the 70s when collectively across denomination, gays started coming out. And suddenly the churches had to deal with the baby on the doorstep. Uh, and this was true across denominations. And the book uh, points out some of the early iconic figures who were coming out in these denominations and suddenly the, the churches had to confront the fact that there were indeed gays and lesbians in their pews and, in fact, in their pulpits. With the exception of the United Church of Christ, the UCC, the denominational response in the 70s was extremely negative. Uh, they reacted very negatively and enacted onerous policies that, uh, that were then in place at the end of the 70s. In the 80s, uh, there wasn't significant change. The, the lobbying groups, the LGBT advocacy groups grew in size and strength and became a presence. By the end of the decade, there were some controversial uh, actions taken in several churches. Uh, ecclesiastical trials resulted uh, continuing into the 90s. Each denomination wrestled with a uh, social statements, human sexuality statements. Uh, task forces were uh, created that came back with proposed policies that were then routinely rejected at the denominational churchwide assemblies or conventions. So the 90s were still very contentious, uh, controversial, uh, not much headway made except in the Episcopal Church, which was largely the result of ecclesiastical trials. In 2000, or in the decade after the new, new millennium, changes came quite rapidly. Gene Robinson uh, was consecrated as a bishop, a gay bishop from New Hampshire. Uh, in 2009, my own ELCA changed its policies. The Episcopal Church uh, changed its policies to allow uh, partnered 
gays and lesbians in all orders of ministry. And in 2010, the, the Presbyterian Church did the same. So just in the last five or six years, there have been significant 180-degree reversals of pre-existing onerous policies. And the only one who has yet of these five uh, to make a change is the Methodist Church. And they have an interesting polity that explains that. And by that, I mean they allow their international uh, members to actually come and vote on denominational policy. Each of these denominations has significant relationships uh, across the sea, but it is only the Methodists who actually allow those folks to come over and vote. In the Methodist Church has about 8 million members on American shores and another 4 million members uh, across the sea. At the last general convention of the Methodist Church in 2012, 38% of the total delegates were international and mostly African, and they form a very solid block of conservatism uh, regarding LGBT issues. So that's, that's just a huge burden that the Methodist Church, uh, is uh, the LGBT movement within the Methodist Church has not been able to overcome and may not for the foreseeable future. Uh, on the other hand, there are significant uh, local and regional pockets within the United Methodist Church that is very affirming. We're seeing all sorts of ecclesiastical disobedience or biblical obe obedience and, and clergy and even bishops are resisting the policy, church policies, and that's resulting in, in a number of ecclesiastical trials that are pending as we speak. And polity seems to be uh, one of the uh, forces that dictates uh, how these denominations have, have done it. Uh, the UCC, uh, with the congregational polity, was able to uh, do it quickly, uh, more quickly than, say, well, the Methodist Church or even the Presbyterian Church that required, you know, a general assembly and then the presbyteries uh, to each vote, vote and approve. That is one of the themes of my book is that polity influences policy. So that is definitely true. Now, the Christian concept of a sin is the centerpiece to all of this. My guest, if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, is uh, Obi Holman, author of a new book just released in November, Queer Clergy, A History of Gay and Lesbian Ministry in American Protestantism. And sin is a big part of this. And, and when straight people and gay people uh, finally began to declare that same-sex love was not sin, that homophobia and prejudice was the sin— that things uh, began to change. That's, that's how I read you. That ideological barrier needed to be knocked down. Is that true? That is absolutely true. For many years, the various churches had uh, a dysfunctional policy that differentiated between being and behavior. It was not a sin to be a homosexual, but it was a sin to act on that. And that's just a false distinction that the gay and lesbian community said, that's who we are. So it's, we, we aren't, it's not a matter of, of uh, behavior. It's a matter of simply being who we are. And yes, when the, the churches finally caught up with and recognized that, that, that loving same gender relationships are indeed uh, something to be cherished and to value and to be supported and promoted, that's when the breakthrough came. Why do you think this movement for equality uh, centered around clergy ordination? That was the visible sign 
of inclusion. In other words, a church could say, yes, we're inclusive, yes, all are welcome, but we don't want you to serve in leadership roles. That is, by definition, not full inclusion. So the, the visible sign, the tangible evidence that a church is indeed inclusive and welcoming is the fact that gays and lesbians are welcomed into all roles, including the roles of ordained ministry. And that uh, also says something about the symbol of clergy and that whole relationship to uh, sinfulness or, or whatever. If, if the clergy person, uh, the, the supposedly most holy one, I mean, uh, in common uh, perception, that's kind of what people think, um, is, uh, is, ex- is a gay person and accepted as a clergy person, that really is a symbol to the rest of the world as well, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And it's a symbol to the, the, the gay and lesbian community that if there are clergy uh, who are of my flesh, who are of my tribe, who are like me, that's a sign of welcome. That's a sign that, well, I can go to that church and I'm not going to be treated differently. Yeah, you mentioned uh, in, in one story about how um, people responded uh, just with tears to uh, Bishop Robinson. Um, and, and thanking him for his, uh, his work there. Yes, that incident you're referring to was he was actually riding on a, a float in the Gay Pride Parade in New York, and, and a man just came up in tears and, and just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the point is, is that, uh, yes, this was important for Bishop Robinson himself and for his diocese, but is, it is such a symbol of welcome and inclusion to the entire gay community that it is very powerful. Well, who are some key personalities uh, from the various denominations uh, in, this, in this whole four decades of struggle? What names will stand out uh, as we look back in history? There are really uh, too many to count. Uh, the, the iconic pilgrims and prophets have been many and uh, very important. Within the UCC, the name of Bill Johnson, Pastor Bill Johnson, certainly stands out. He was the first uh, out gay man to be ordained by the UCC back in 1972. And then the rest of his career, he, he essentially served as the iconic figure that the rest of Christendom rallied around. He, he was a pan-denominational leader he, uh, he ultimately served within the UCC home offices. Uh, he's been on multiple tasks for, task force, so that's certainly one name. Um, within the Episcopal Church, I would, I would hold up two names. One is Louis Crew, who was a professor at uh, uh, various places, and he was the founder of the LGBT advocacy group, uh, Episcopal advocacy group called Integrity back in 1974, and he has continued to be a mainstay of that organization until recently when he's he's taken a, a back step. Uh, Dr. Crew recently got married, and now he goes by the name of, uh, of Dr. Louis Clay. Uh, he married his partner of 40 years. A uh, second Episcopal figure is the well-known Bishop Spong. Mm-hmm. I was well aware of his voluminous writings. I wasn't aware of the central role that he personally played. Uh, late in the decade of the 80s, he ordained an out gay man to the priesthood. 
which really brought the issue to a forefront. And then in the decade of the 90s, he continued to be the leading spokesperson for uh, gay issues in the House of Bishops, the Episcopal House of Bishops. His associate was tried in a heresy trial for ordaining a gay man. And that heresy trial, when it went against the conservatives and said that that was not a violation of the, of the core doctrine of the Episcopal Church, that was an, a judicial breakthrough, if you will, uh, that really opened the doors within the Episcopal Church. Within the uh, Presbyterian Church, David Bailey Sint was uh, an early leader. He was also an early victim of the AIDS epidemic. So he died in 1986. Chris Glosser was uh, very involved with More Light Presbyterians and then as an author and editor through the years. And, and Chris is still around. He, he, his own ordination path within the Presbyterian Church was, was blocked. And ultimately, he was ordained in 2005 by the Metropolitan Community Churches. But he is still around as a, a writer and a blogger and still is influential. Uh, there are certainly other Presbyterians within the uh, Lutheran Church. Um, Pastor Anita Hill certainly comes to mind. She has been an outspoken advocate for a number of years. In uh, 2001, she was ordained irregularly, that is, uh, without the consent and contrary to the rules of the ELCA. Uh, there were a number of so-called extraordinum uh, or extraordinary ordinations, and, and hers was one of those. Uh, so that would be a name. There were also some three uh, folks in the early 90s who were in San Francisco, and they were the first ones or irregularly ordained. Jeff Johnson, a gay man, Ruth Frost, and Phyllis Zillhart were partners, lesbian partners. They were ordained within some Lutheran churches in San Francisco, and the Lutheran church actually expelled those churches. Uh, they have recently been re-invited back. Uh, so those are some names. Uh, within the Methodist church, uh, Jimmy Creech, Pastor Jimmy Creech, who was uh, defrocked because he persisted in performing holy unions, covenant services of partnered uh, gays and lesbians. Um, Bishop Sprague of the Northern Illinois uh, area was uh, very influential and continues to be influential. Uh, the list just goes on and on and on. There have really been a number of very important and influential folks who have sacrificed, who have put uh, their their uh, put themselves out there and oftentimes they've been abused but the metaphor that is often used is is like Jacob at the fort of the Jabbok they have wrestled with their church and continue to wrestle and even though they may be wounded they are wrestling and fighting for their blessing my guest is R.W. O.B. Holman. He is the author of a brand new book called Queer Clergy, A History of Gay and Lesbian Ministry in American Protestantism. He also blogs at Spirit of a Liberal, a blog of progressive religious themes. And it seems that the denominations have, um, or at least four of these five, have somewhat settled the issues of, of uh clergy ordination, or at least uh, well on that uh, path, and now it seems to be uh, marriage equality and some other issues. 
Uh, that's true. Uh, and, and that has actually varied from uh, one denomination to the next. Within the Methodist Church, that is the issue these days. They really aren't anywhere close to or, ordaining gays and lesbians, and they're fighting the battle on the question of, of may their clergy and their churches perform uh, gay weddings. And uh, a seminary president, uh, an esteemed seminary president, is currently on trial for doing that. A retired bishop has recently done that. A number of clergy, 30 or 40, came together recently in uh, Pennsylvania to jointly perform a, a marriage. So that's the, the struggle within the Methodist church. Within my own ELCA, that has never really been an issue. Uh, it has always been left to pastors to pastor to their people as they deem appropriate. And if that means offering a blessing, even though the church clearly said this is not marriage, but if a local pastor deems it appropriate to bless the relationship of, of a pair of his parishioners, that was always left to the discretion of local clergy. Uh, within the Episcopal Church, that was that is also true that uh, presiding over uh, covenant services and now marriages is is a given. Uh, in fact, the Episcopal Church has is, is, has recently is actually established a separate rite or liturgy for that purpose. So yes, as in civil society where marriage equality is the issue of the day, and we see one one state or jurisdiction after another move in the direction of marriage equality, that's also going on in the church. Well, what about some other denominations? Well, now we have, as you mentioned, a dozen states uh, um, that allow for same-gender marriage. Uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell is gone. Uh, The Supreme Court ruled some provisions of the Defense of Marriage Act as unconstitutional. Uh, Polls indicate that more and more people affirm marriage equality and equality in general. Uh, for sexual and gender minorities. Uh, when do you think uh, the Southern Baptists will ordain queer clergy and perform same-sex weddings? Why, that's a good question. Um, I don't think it's in the foreseeable future. Uh, with the partisan split in this country over so many issues, including religious issues, uh, I, I think the, the staunch conservative part of the country and the staunch conservative part of the church is still a ways away. Now, that's not to say that there aren't uh, local pockets, islands of inclusivity, and indeed uh, organizations, LGBT organizations, uh, that are there within the evangelical uh, churches in this country. But in terms of denominational policy, I don't see any significant changes at all in the immediate future. We are just about out of time. My guest, Obi Holman, author of Queer Clergy, A History of Gay and Lesbian Ministry in American Protestantism. And on a personal note, I, I want to thank you for your work and for your advocacy. Uh, over Thanksgiving weekend, I have the honor of officiating at my daughter's, Katie's, wedding to her fiancé, Amber, in New York City. And, um, and it's due to work of, of people like you uh, who are being public about their advocacy and equality that uh, make these exciting things happen. It's sort of like a, uh, a rushing stream that, uh, that is just uh, gathering momentum, and uh, it's rather exciting. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with me today and for your important work. Thank you, John. It's been my pleasure.
You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck. My church is First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well. Thank you.